I stand before you today. I am um, thankful to have this opportunity to address you all. In the past, when me and Misan had been up here, it was often to give a missionary report. And uh, there might have been a five or ten minute message in the midst of that, but uh, I think this is the first time I've done an actual sermon. So hopefully that'll be all right. Yeah, we shall see. Basically, uh, a few weeks ago, when Caleb uh, called me and told me that he was going to be out of town and asked if I'd be interested in preaching, um, I wanted to make sure I could consider it and that I would be able to do it before I committed to it. And then after I said yes, I got COVID. So (laughs) I was like, oh, no. Uh, But thankfully, uh, the Lord has been gracious, and I recovered quickly. And uh, my family didn't get sick, so that's a blessing. But I've I've had you know uh, this message, maybe some other messages on my heart recently, and I was uh, thankful for the opportunity to be able to share with you. And I've always enjoyed this church because um, Maranatha shares the pulpit; they uh, open the pulpit uh, for other people to preach, and and I really feel like that's that's how the body of Christ looks. That. Each one of you could come up here and probably share something that would uh, edify and encourage the rest of us. Uh, we build each other up. Uh, we are the body of Christ. Uh, we each have different gifts, of course, but um, i just thankful for this opportunity. So uh, I wanted to give you an idea about what's going on here in uh, 2 Corinthians, because I know we've been in Philippians, and therefore you have no background, although most of you have probably read the Bible before, so you might know what's going on, but let me just fill you in a little bit of what's going on in Second Corinthians. Now, obviously, Paul has had a kind of up-and-down relationship with uh, the Corinthian church. Uh, he helped to establish it. Uh, he lived there for a year and a half, uh, and then he went on some other missionary journeys, and during that time, he got some reports, and he got some letters, and some questions, and he saw some issues going on, and he wrote a letter. Now, we know about four letters, so I I don't want to be confusing this morning, uh, but this is sort of the fourth letter. Uh, But the first letter is only mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And then there is the tearful letter, or the harsh letter that he mentions in 2 Corinthians. Thankfully, the Lord has preserved 1 and 2 Corinthians for us, and uh, we understand it as God's inspired word. Anyways, that Paul has uh, written back and forth, and this letter particularly is him giving a defense um, of his ministry, uh, maybe explaining his motivations and intentions behind what he's doing. Uh, that's because many people had come into the Corinthian church and were causing disruption in the Corinthian church and, 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 and calling Paul a fraud, calling him disingenuous, uh, saying that he wants to take advantage of the Corinthians in some way. And so Paul is defending himself, but he's also laying out uh, principles that he ap- applies to all Christians. I think sometimes we can read something like this and think, oh, that's good uh, instruction or that's good news for a pastor or for a missionary uh, or for somebody who's involved in ministry. Uh, but you can take pretty much everything that Paul is saying here and apply it to the Christian life. And it doesn't matter what your profession is, um, but this is a call. And he's challenging the Corinthian church, saying, I want you to live this way. And so 
Um, getting into his intention, starting in verse 11, he says, since therefore, uh, therefore, since we have the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. So right away, Paul gives a uh, one of his motivations, the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord, of course, uh, would have been familiar to many of uh, the Jewish Christians of of that church. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the fear of the Lord is mentioned multiple times. Of course, we know, you know, in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, but I think sometimes this phrase, fear of the Lord, in the 21st century church is a little bit confusing. Um, I think, especially as Christians, we say, are we supposed to be afraid of God? Doesn't First John 4.18 say that perfect love casts out fear? That fear has to do with punishment? And if I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation, so there's no punishment. So why am I afraid? Or Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So what is it, Paul? Which one is it? You know, what is the fear of the Lord? What is he talking about? Well, some commentators uh, say that maybe a, a better word for fear would be respect. But I don't think respect uh, quite gets to the real meaning of this phrase, especially for an American. Because as Americans, we respect people, you know, and we might say that someone has a higher station in life or that someone has a higher accomplishment. Maybe I respect the Queen of England. Maybe I respect uh, an Olympian who won a gold medal, okay? But at the end of the day, I still know that we're equals because we're humans and we have equality. Every man has, you know, I can't even, I can't even quote what I'm saying here. Um, anyways, that mindset means that respect is not quite effective enough because God, we are not God's equal. So, Deep reverence or reverent awe would be a better word for saying the fear of the Lord. And I would add to that with trembling, okay? And, and just, uh, you know, an example, uh, me and Misa a couple years ago, we went to the Grand Canyon. And the Grand Canyon, when you're standing there and you're looking out, it's massive, it's majestic, it's beautiful. And you just are, it takes your breath away and you're just filled with awe. And you might be filled with trembling if you're standing too close to the edge. Because it's a perilous place. Every year, people die at the Grand Canyon. Unfortunately, many of those people die because they're taking selfies. No joke. That's really one of the reasons that people perish there. And it's because they're not taking it seriously enough. They're not taking the danger seriously enough. So it's the same idea. God, if you remember the, the quote from the Chronicles of Narnia, when uh, it's kind of an analogy here that Aslan, who represents God, he's the great lion, and Lucy asks, is he safe? And of course, Mr. Beaver says, he's not safe, but he is good. So this is the idea, that we fear the Lord, we know his power, we know what it is to stand in his presence and tremble. But because of that, Paul persuades people. So Paul is showing right away, this is my intention. My intention is not to manipulate, it's to persuade. And it's not to persuade for my selfish ambition, but it's because I fear the Lord. So Paul starts out with an intention and a motivation right away. But then he gets into it. 
what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. He's saying, I know my intentions before the Lord. God knows, God knows me. And I hope it's plain to you by now. I've written you all these letters. <laughs> I've visited you. I've sent people back and forth. There's all these reports. If you don't, if your conscience doesn't trust me by now, <laughs> but Paul still has to address the problem, um, what's going on. He said, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. Wait a second. <laughs> I'm a good Baptist. We're not supposed to be proud. And, and, and in other verses, uh, another version, it says to boast. Well, that, that's no better either. I mean, what, we're not supposed to boast. So what is Paul talking about? Well, what Paul usually does is he takes a concept that's familiar with his audience and he subverts it. So when he, po- when he boasts, he boasts in things like the cross, which if you remember is a message of foolishness and a stumbling block to those who are perishing. But to those who believe, it is the power of salvation. He also boasts in his weaknesses. Who does that? You know, you usually boast in your accomplishments. So Paul is flipping things upside down as a contrast to the people who are opposing him. And, and, that, and as we read further, that makes more sense. Uh, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. So who is Paul addressing? He's talking about a group of people that came in and caused a disruption. They were called the super apostles. Now, this is not some new series on Disney+. Plus. We're not talking about a, a Marvel universe right here. The super apostles were... Um, kind of Paul's mocking term for these uh, people that had shown up in Corinth and they brought with them letters of commendation from other churches, apparently. And uh, they were saying that we're superior to apostles, especially like this Paul apostle. We're, we're superior to him. Um, and they were making comparisons because Paul, how could this Paul be uh, favored from God? How could he be uh, one of God's apostles? I mean, he's always getting beaten up. He's put, being put in jail. He's being whipped. He's being stoned and uh, shipwrecked. And uh, that doesn't look like he has God's favor. Uh, he's, a, he's a little bit uh, nearsighted. He's bald. Come on. You know, this Paul is not favored like we are. Uh, so that's that's who these super apostles were presenting themselves and contrasting themselves. Well, I think this is very relevant today because we have a similar issue going on in the church. We have the celebrity pastor, the rise of the celebrity pastor. I'm not just talking about what seems to be obvious, the health, wealth, and prosperity guys. Yeah, they're they're pretty obvious that they care about outward appearances because they have the fancy shoes, the $1,000 suits, the sports car, the, bri- the private jet that they somehow need. Um, I'm not talking about those guys. I'm talking about people who are celebrities and therefore are given a platform to be preachers. Um, that doesn't mean that every popular preacher is always bad or that uh, every book that comes out uh, on the Christian uh, bestseller list is always uh, unuseful. But there are, uh, we, we have become a culture that gives credence to people's abilities and their talents, but not based on their character or their maturity. 
we, we've lifted up these influencers, these thought leaders who have, you know, all the followers on Instagram and TikTok and they have lots of views on YouTube. And because of their popularity, uh, and they happen to be Christian, we give them a platform. We haven't seen their character. Um, and of course, when you build on that type of foundation, it's bound to fall. Uh, in the last few years, we've seen many of these things happen. We've seen many scandals, abuse, harassment, leadership abuse, big names too. I'm not, some of these people were people that, you know, some of us might have looked up to, thought, thought, oh, that sounds like a reasonable person. And then the truth comes out. And some of it was being covered up by other pastors, by other ministers. So this, this is a big problem today. And uh, Paul is encouraging us not to look at the outward. We have to look at the heart. This passage, he's also alluding to 1 Samuel 16, where uh, Samuel was called to anoint uh, one of Jesse's sons, and he sees the first oldest son, and he thinks, that's the guy. He seems like the right guy. And, and God says, no, no, because humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. And he ends up anointing the last son of Jesse, a shepherd boy named David, who, turns out, becomes a man after God's own heart. So God saw that. God knows uh, what's underneath. So Paul continues, For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. Now, (laughs) this is probably an accusation that they had against Paul, the super apostles that he's out of his mind. And it's not hard to believe that, you know, Paul does look like he's out of his mind. I mean, he says statements like, to die is gain, to rejoice in suffering. Uh, what is that about? To boast in weaknesses? And he does look out of his mind. And a lot of times when we're, if we're following God, if we're faithful following Christ, the world looks at us and thinks that's unusual, that's strange. But if we are in our right mind, it is for you, Paul says. And I think um, what he's saying here is, although I, when I, I'm serving God and it might look like I'm out of my mind, um, I try to be reasonable. I try to present my arguments in a, in a sound manner. And, and Paul obviously does that. I mean, historians who look at the epistles of Paul uh, notice that he is an expert in rhetorical speech. His arguments are very eloquent, and his logic and the metaphors that he uses are are really uh, stellar. Actually, even though he said to when we were in person, uh, we didn't come with lofty speech. He sure does know how to write a letter. So, Paul is telling us that, and then he comes to verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. Now, before Paul said, you know, one of my motivations, one of my, uh, that motivates me is the fear of the Lord. That's still true. God is not, uh, uh, Paul is not canceling that out simply because he's mentioning another one. But I do think because of the language he uses here, which has a much stronger connotation, I think this is Paul's main motivation. This might be the the ultimate motivation for him. It's not in 
either or, it's a both and, but I just think that he's been building up to this argument. So he says, for the love of Christ compels us. Now, question is, what does the love of Christ refer to? Does it refer to our love for Christ, or does it refer to Christ's love for us? Now, in the, in the Greek, in the grammar, uh, from commentaries, I didn't read it myself, <laughs> uh, it's clear that it could go either way. But because of the following verse, verse 15, it's also clear that it is most likely the subjective genitive, which is Christ's love for us. And I think that even if you adopted the view that, you know, hey, I love Christ so much that it, it motivates me to do these things for him. Well, our love is grounded in his love, for we love because he first loved us. So we know it's Christ's love, but what does Christ's love do? This word is he compels us. Now this word in other translations says urges us on, constrains us, controls us. Um, the word behind that word is the word syneko, which is uh, in, in Greek means it has the idea of being hemmed in, actually being held in custody, like arrested or detained. I think a really good illustration of this is when Paul in uh, chapter 23 of Acts, after he's just been, he's in Jerusalem and he finds out about the plot that the Jews are trying to kill him and he tells the Roman guard and so they transfer him to Caesarea with 470 Roman soldiers. Now, when you're in a line with 470 Roman soldiers, I think you're compelled to follow the soldiers in front of you. And the soldiers behind you, they urge you on. And those soldiers on both sides of you, they constrain you. So they pretty much control your agenda. So this is the same thing that's happening, but it's Christ's love that's doing that. So he says, Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. So now he's explaining Christ's love. And this verse could be a little bit confusing. Who is it saying, the one who died for all? Well, we know that's Christ. Therefore, all died. That's where my confusion came in. But if you look at Romans 5, and you see the idea that through Adam, Adam sinned, and sin came to all humans, and therefore all uh, experienced death. But Christ is now the new representative. He's the new Adam, and we are united to him in his life and in his death so that salvation could come through his death. So what's happening here is Christ, when he took on flesh, when the word became flesh, he represented us, and when he died, all of humanity dies. So what Paul is setting up here is the universal nature of salvation. That's not universal salvation, but it does mean that it is an invitation. It is open for all. But not all will believe. And that's, and that's very clear in the next verse. It doesn't say in the next verse, he died for all, therefore all live. It says, he died for all so that those who live 
So some will live, some will not. How do we live? We live if we are in Christ. If we've accepted his sacrifice, we trust in him, then we live. But how do we live? Those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Now, a great commentary on this is Galatians 2.20, where Paul personalizes this and explains it like this. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It doesn't get much clearer than that. This is the doctrine of justification. This is the idea that God makes the great exchange with us. He takes our life and our sin, and he dies and in our place, and then he exchanges his life. And Paul challenges now, you know, walk in that life. Walk in the newness of that life. And don't live for yourselves. I think a lot of people think that, that that's, you know, for Christ died for our freedom. You know, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Well, it doesn't sound very free if I can't do what I want to do. But the problem is doing what you want to do is what got you in the problem in the first place. That's what happened with humanity is living for ourselves is what caused Christ to have to come. So living for him is a whole better life. So this is the, the thing that Paul's been doing. He's been, he's been laying out a perspective and his motivation. And he's been saying you can't look at the outside. You have to look at the inside. And how can you do that if you're compelled by the love of Christ? So he's basically saying we need to look through the lens of Christ, the lens of love. And how do we do that? What does that look like? It's not just that it affects our walk and the, and the way we walk, but it also affects our viewpoint. In verse 16, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective or a human point of view. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer know him this way. Paul is a perfect example. His life is, is a living example of this. He was a Pharisee. He was faithful. He thought he was following God faithfully. And he saw these Christians as heretics. They were the enemy. They were, telling, they were a dangerous sect that was preaching something wrong. And they were following this false messiah who had been crucified as a criminal and was a blasphemer at that. And um, he was going to Damascus to get an order of execution to uh, get rid of these guys. He was helping God out. Well, he sees the vision. He is blinded. Christ, at the course at that time, Paul goes by Saul. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his life is changed. And for three days, he's blind, and then um, he's prayed for, and the scales, something like scales, falls off of his eyes. I think that's the old vision. That's the old lens. That's the way he was looking before. And now he's given new eyes, but in Christ. In Christ, he's given this new lens to look at things. So from now on, then, we do know, we know anyone from a worldly perspective. I think a great passage that kind of illustrates this is a passage from 
C.S. Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says there, talking about um, uh, people as not mere mortals, he says, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. He goes on to say that what this means is that we're not solemn all the time, realizing uh, people's destinies in the balance, but instead we are at least taking others seriously. He says, with no flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. So thinking of that and thinking of how uh, Christ died for all and that all have died in him, but not all have believed. We can no longer look at our neighbor who might vote differently than us, who might think differently than us, uh, who, who lives a lifestyle we may not agree with. Uh, we cannot look at them the same way. We have to look through the lens of love and see that they are someone who Christ died for. And they and we want to persuade people. We want to persuade them and, and bring them to a knowledge of him. And that means we can't, we can't think the way the world thinks. The world likes to pick sides. The world likes to be partisan. The world likes to say it's either this or that. But instead, we can represent Christ's love to people in how we act and how we talk with them. So, Here's the good news that Paul kind of has been leading up to. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Now, this passage in the Greek, uh, Tom Wright says that this passage is summarizing the Christian life. But in the Greek, uh, it says it even more briefly. The new creation in question, it says it like this. If anyone is in Messiah or in Christ, new creation. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The new creation in question, says Wright, refers both to the person concerned and to the world which they enter, the world which has now been reconciled to the creator. I think that's a nice idea, that it's not just us. It becomes a new creation when we are in Christ. But now we can see, with those new eyes, we can see new creation around us. Um, we do believe that there is a future event where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. We do believe 
that we will have eternal life after we die, or if Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. But we can see glimpses of the new creation now, and and we can walk in a way that uh, represents that as well. And not in our own power, but definitely by the power of Christ we can do that. And so this is the good news that we're offering to people, that they can become new, that they can see new, and um, that there is something new. So I just hope that this will be inspire us to, to not see the world the same way, to not see others in the same way that as, as the messages tell us that we should, as, as people tell us that we, we should look at it this way or we should see it our way, as the pundits and the, all the different people telling us this is what you should give your money to, this is how you should live your life. But we should center ourselves on Christ and what Christ shows us and how he loves through his cross. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your Son, and we thank you for this great gospel, this this truth that um, one died for all, therefore all died, but there is also new life in him, for he was raised. And by the same power that raised him, you will raise us if we are in Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us the... the um, the wisdom and the, the grace to be able to persuade others, not just with our words, but with our lives, in a way to draw them closer to you. Lord, let this good news be on our hearts, be on our lips, and help it be the lens by which we look and see others. Lord, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.